Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Do, uh, do you know what all diets have in common? I'm going to tell it to you right here. Here it is. They are a miserable way to live your life. Every single one of them. There's not a good diet out there. You know what? Two words you'll never utter on a diet? I'm full. And if you do, you're, yeah, it's not a diet you're on, first of all. You're either lying to yourself or you're gaining weight. Just be honest. Just be honest. You'll never say, I'm full. I've always been envious of those, those people that are like naturally skinny. I have friends like that that can walk into a donut shop. They can try one of everything and they can just stay skinny for the rest of their life. I can smell a Snickers bar and I got to run two laps. It's just sometimes it's not fair. Anytime you've ever seen me, I am either in the middle of a diet or I've just finished one about to go on another one. That's just, that's who I am. That's how I live my life. I'm not talking about one of those cleanses. That's not, I'm pretty sure that's not a real thing. I'm talking about one of those, if this doesn't work, I'm going to have to buy new pants. That's what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter what kind of diet it is. It's always characterized by what you're avoiding. Are you on a low-carb diet? Well, then you're starving yourself from breads and grains. You cannot have breads and grains. Are you on a, a low-sodium diet? Well, you've got to get rid of salt of all kinds. You can't have anything that tastes good. <laughs> and of course, they always have to tell you on these diets all the things that you can't have. It, it kind of, in some way, makes it sound better because you start to think to yourself, oh, I can live without that. I, I'd like never eat that. So it's, it's fine. It's, it's, really, it's really all right. But it's really them hiding how utterly miserable you're about to be for the next few weeks of your life. All you can eat is boot leather and cardboard. Mmm, yum. It's good. Of course, the point of dieting is avoiding anything tasty. It's pushing away from the table. It's avoidance of all kinds of good food. Now, many in our churches and across our town see Christianity to be much like a diet. Amen. Here's a list of the things that you cannot do. Simply avoid these things, push away from these things, and you'll be okay. And sometimes even in our pulpits, the doctrine of Scripture is taught like this. Here's a list of the things that you can't do. Adhere to these and you'll be fine. Adhere to these things that you can do and you will be fine. Christian parents even sometimes take this home to their children. And they teach their kids these things about faith. Simply stay away from these things, son. Don't do these things and you will be absolutely okay. This is the Christian diet. You just have to get used to it. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus tells us a completely different story about the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They're defined differently in this text. So we're going to read our text, Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read all the way from verses 3 to 12, but we're going to focus on verse 6 this morning. So read with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our passage this morning, we're focusing on verse 6. Where, he said, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want to remind you of the context of the Beatitudes, that the, the context that those Beatitudes fall in. The Beatitudes are all the blesseds that you're going to see there between verses 3 and 12 that we just read. And the Beatitudes fall at the very beginning of Jesus' first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, traditionally referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 to 7 of the book of Matthew. So Jesus opens this first sermon by essentially proclaiming who is considered a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You'll recall in the passages just prior to this, to the Beatitudes, Matthew tells us that Jesus came in teaching and preaching. And the content of his teaching is undergirded by the simple command, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And after that, Matthew tells us that Jesus went in and he starts gathering his disciples that are going to go about promoting this mission that he's on, this kind of itinerant preaching mission that he's on. And then he starts healing people and casting out demons. And so quite naturally, people are drawn to this message of the kingdom because here comes somebody who's not only claiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but then he's exhibiting some signs that there might be something different here to him. So they're drawn to what he has to say. So he opens this sermon by telling them ultimately who is going to possess the kingdom of heaven. And he says right there at the beginning that it's the poor in spirit that are going to possess God's saving reign. It's those who know that they're in spiritual poverty and they've come to Jesus for rescue. Then he says it's those who mourn. And by that he means that it's those who are brought to grief by their own sinful state and the sinful state of the the world around them. And then last week, we saw that it's those who are characterized by meekness. The ones who have an attitude toward all people that's free from malice and vengeance. And that are characterized by gentleness and self-control. It's given to the meek that are welcomed into God's kingdom. What we've discovered in the Beatitudes is that what Jesus is describing here is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It's what they look like. It's their moxie. If you cut them open, this is the content of their soul, is this right here, this list right here. This is what comprises citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They're poor in spirit. They're mourning over their own sin. They're meek. And today they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. As we've been doing in the previous weeks, this morning we're going to look at this one simple verse in verse 6, the beatitude that Jesus gives us here, and we're going to dissect it. And we want to understand, first of all, who is it that Jesus is talking about, and then what do we really do about what he's talking about? Jesus is, in this beatitude, capturing the longing of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What is it that they long for more than anything? What do they long for? 
And so we're going to ask three questions of this text as we work our way through it to see what Jesus is saying here to us. First question is this. What is the object of the longing? What is the object of the longing? Jesus says very plainly here, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's for righteousness that they long. Now, when you hear the word righteousness, you may think of a couple of different things. The first thing that you may think of when you hear the word righteousness is the saving righteousness that God gives to someone when they profess faith in Christ. Maybe he's talking about that kind of righteousness. We sometimes call that justification. The the saving righteousness that I have standing before God because of Jesus. I'm saved now. I'm made righteous. So like Romans 8.30 when Paul says, And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified. That's the same root word there, justified, that Jesus uses here in Matthew for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So maybe he's, he just means the ones that want to be saved. Those are the ones that will be satisfied. Maybe that's what he means. It's also possible that you may think of righteousness like justice, like social justice, like things that you think are injustices that you want to see rectified. You want to see those made righteous. We often use righteousness like this even in our own language where we say about somebody, he's, he's got a righteous cause. He is out on a righteous crusade. He has a, a just cause. It's something that, that promotes good and shuns evil. It's a righteous or it's a just cause. So that he wants to see justice prevail in society. Maybe Jesus is saying that to the people who desire all these wrongs to be made right, the courts to adjudicate fairly, and all these other kinds of things. It's possible that maybe you might be thinking of this kind of social justice kind of righteousness. But it becomes fairly obvious what kind of righteousness Jesus is pointing to. If you look down at the next time the word righteousness is used in this chapter, it's in verse 10, where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the kind of righteous act that leads to persecution. And then the next time he uses this is down in verse 20. If you look down there in verse 20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. The kind of righteousness that Jesus has in mind here is right living. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to live a life that God desires us to live. Now, most of the time we see the word righteousness in the book of Matthew. This is what it means. Living rightly. It means living the way God intended us to live. Living the way He has prescribed to us in His Word. Now, remember last week I said that these characteristics are not just describing a heavenly citizen, but they're also building on one another. So you have the poor in spirit. They've recognized that they need the Lord for everything, and it brings them to a state of mourning over their own sin. They cannot help but mourn over their own sin. And what does this produce in that person? It produces meekness, humility, gentleness towards other people because he realizes that he has his own spiritual poverty that he's dealing with. Now the person realizes of all these things, what does he want to do? 
he wants to strive toward the kind of lifestyle that God desires him to live. So the answer to this question, it's abundantly clear. The object of the longing of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to live a life that God desires him to live. What's the object of longing? It's to live a life that God desires us to live. This occupies the citizen's thoughts, governs his actions, person that Jesus has in mind here, the righteous person, is the one who seeks to live a life pleasing to the Lord. But that brings us to the second question that we need to ask. What's the nature of this longing? What's the nature of this longing? Now, speaking in generalities, generally speaking, people want to be moral. Just in general, Christian or non-Christian alike, the vast majority of people that you're going to meet, whether inside this building or out on the street, all want to live a moral life. Now, since Adam and Eve, we've all sought to define morality on our own. What's right in our own eyes? And you, need, you don't need to look any further than a TV news channel. You can see people defining righteousness in their own eyes, defining morality in their own eyes. But generally speaking, people want to live morally. In 2016, the Journal of Social, Psychological, and Personality Science published a study, and it concluded this, as it, asked, as it found in the people that it studied. It said this, Most people strongly believe they are just, virtuous, and moral yet regard the average person as distinctly less so. All right? Think about that for a second. So in other words, most people believe that they're striving towards righteousness and that everyone else is the problem. Amazing, isn't it? It The point being that when Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, Most everybody in this room, statistically speaking, thinks he's blessing them. Right? That's what that means. Is that when we read, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I think he's talking about me. That also means that the unrighteous person that's condemned there in Jesus' statement is the person sitting next to me. Or maybe the person across the room. And if you're married, it's probably the person sitting next to you. So, so basically, we all have some sense of moral superiority. All of us. It's, it's baked into us. Part of our condition. And we talked about a few weeks ago how I tend to cut myself a lot of slack for the things that I do. I tend to look over some of the things that are my unrighteous foolishness. But, but man, I can be really scrupulous when it comes to the people around me. I can hold them to the letter of the law. My kids, my wife, I can hold everybody else to a standard I'm unwilling to hold myself to. Because after all, I'm a pretty moral person. So statistically speaking, when Jesus calls out the the people that pursue righteousness and blesses them, most of us think we're in that group. But you see, Jesus doesn't talk about those who pursue righteousness. He says, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The way he illustrates the attitude of the person that he's talking about here is that that someone who is not just wanting to do the right thing, but the person that wants to live a life pleasing to God so much that it can only be equated to his own hunger and thirst. I want to live a life pleasing to God as much as I hunger and I thirst for food and water. Now, that not only paints a really clear picture of the person that he's looking for, it should also undermine our moral superiority. Because, sure, you think you're a moral, upright person, or that you strive toward goodness, but do you want to live righteously as much as you want food and water? That's a whole different question entirely. There are at least two things that I think are interesting about hunger and thirst. I want us to to think about, to really get what he's saying here and to understand what Jesus is saying here. First, hunger is, is, is a real feeling. It's a real pit of your stomach feeling. And second, hunger and thirst is intense. There's an intensity to that feeling. There's the reality of hunger and there's the intensity of hunger. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon illustrated the reality of hunger like this. It should appear on the screen behind you. He says, hungering and thirsting are matters of fact, not fancy. Suppose that you meet a man who tells you he is so hungry that he's almost starving. And you say to him, nonsense, my dear fellow. Just forget all about it. It's a mere whim of yours. For you can live very well without food if you like. Why, he knows that you're mocking him. And if you could surprise some poor wretch who's been floating away in a boat, cast away at sea, and had not been able for days to moisten his mouth except with the briny water which had only increased his thirst. And if you were to say to him, Thirst! It is only your fancy. You're nervous. That's all. You you need no drink. The man would soon tell you that he knows better than that, for he must drink or die. There is nothing in the world that is more real than hunger and thirst. And the truly blessed man has such a real passion, desire, and craving after righteousness that it can only be likened to hunger and thirst. He must have his sins pardoned. He must be clothed in righteousness of Christ. He must be sanctified. And he feels that it will break his heart if he cannot get rid of sin. He pines, he longs, he prays to be made holy. He cannot be satisfied without this righteousness. And his hungering and thirsting for it is a very real thing. This is the attitude that Jesus is getting at. Not just someone who pursues pleasing God, but someone that desires it with such an intense Real longing that it can only be equated with hunger and thirst. Such a vivid picture. Willing to overcome all obstacles in order to achieve it. Does everything he can. Begs God to be gifted with righteousness. Does this describe your pursuit of righteousness? 
But hunger has an intensity to it too, doesn't it? Hunger is something that's common to all of us. You don't have to learn it. I have three kids, and all three kids came out of the womb instinctively craving food. They instinctively thirst. You don't have to teach them that. I'm 34 years old, and I'm notorious at the end of lunch for asking my wife, what do you want to do for dinner? Like I said, I'm always on a diet, so I'm always hungry, right? <laughs> what do you want to do for dinner? Now, I am clearly not the planner, not the checkbox planner in our family. That's, that's very clearly my wife. But when it comes to eating, we switch roles. I am very concerned with what is going to happen in the food department. I have either a few hours to get excited about what we're going to eat or a few hours to change her mind about what we should eat. That's the way I look at it. Like, the more time I have, the better that is. When I start getting irritable right around time to eat, she'll look at me and she's like, you, you need a Snickers or something. You're hangry. It comes on me soon, right? Like I get, I get so hungry, I get a little bitter and start saying things that are just not normal for me. I get hangry. There's an intensity to hunger. And it's only this kind of intense Hungry pursuit of righteousness. That mourning of sin is actually produced, isn't it not? Exactly. That's how the mourning of sin is produced. You have a desire, a deep yearning for righteousness. And you're looking at your own life that doesn't measure up to the righteousness that God requires. And it brings about mourning because you're not there. I'm hungry for that and I can't for some reason reconcile my life. I want to be there, but I'm here. Why is that? Parents, this is what we want for our children. So many parents are tempted to stop short of hungering and thirsting for righteousness and simply settle for behavior modification. I want my kid to just obey the rules. To just say yes sir and no sir, yes ma'am and no ma'am. To do these certain things and check these boxes. That's the kind of behavior I want. And there are plenty of children that are just, they're rule followers. It's part of their, their nature. They're rule followers. And whether it's because they think in black and white terms, or maybe it's that they want to avoid a spanking, which is also the, a reality. Or maybe it's just that they want to desperately seek your approval. But there are certain kids that are rule followers. And oftentimes in our families, they're held up as the model of children. That's exactly what I want my kids to be like. Do you see how he follows the rules? He just does what, is, what, what I want him to do. And he doesn't do what I don't want him to do. And then we all know that there are children, maybe even children in the same household, that are stubborn, that are strong-willed. And frequently the punishment gets cranked up to 11 on them. Because why can't you just be like your brother? Why can't you just be like your sister? Don't you see? Here's the rules. I don't want you to do that. And you keep pushing the boundaries. But it's possible that both hearts are far from what Christ describes here. And that I've just settled 
for the one that follows the rules as the model of all children. That's not what I want for my kids. I want them to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if I set the bar merely at obedience, I stop short of communicating the goals of the Christian heavenly citizen. Do I want obedience? You bet I do. Do I punish disobedience? You bet I do. But what I want to see in my children in the short years that I've got them under my roof is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. That's the only thing that's going to keep them when they leave is that they desire deep down in their soul righteousness above all things. How do I do that? I certainly have to discipline them. But they have to see it in me first. That's the hardest part. They have to see that I hunger and thirst for righteousness. That I can come to them and I can own up to my own mistakes. That I can say that's not what I'm going for right there. The attitude that I exhibited right there is not what God wants of me. I'm sorry. They also have to understand the root cause of disobedience. Son, it's not just that you hit your brother. It's that you envy what he has. That's the problem. It's envy. It's not just hitting. It's envy. It's sin. God calls us as parents to discipline sin. But church, it's the same for us. We should not only be characterized by our avoidance of sin, but a desperate desire to pursue righteousness. That's the answer, isn't it? What's the nature that we're going for here? A desperate desire to pursue righteousness. It's not merely about the sins that you don't do. Well, I'm a Christian, so I don't stay home on Sundays. I go to church. I'm a Christian, so I don't do that. I'm a Baptist, so I don't dance. I would say to you, yes, good. You should come to church on Sunday. Nothing else in this world rose from the dead on Sunday. You should come here to celebrate the one who did. Right? Plain and simple. Yes, you absolutely should. But if you're simply coming here out of a sense of obligation, if you're coming here just because that's what you want, is to just because this is what I'm obliged to do. I, I'm sorry, that's not what Christ is going for here. Well, we go to church on Sunday, that's just what we do in this family. Is that hungering and thirsting for righteousness? No. Do you come here out of a sense of obligation? Or do you come here because you're hungry for the word of God? Because your soul thirsts to sing praises to his name. Your deepest desire is to be around other believers. Not just out of a sense of duty, but because they absolutely can encourage you and admonish you and correct you. And you want that. If that's not your attitude, then I'm sorry, that's not what Jesus is going for here. 
men try giving your wife flowers and saying, well, it's my obligation as a husband to give you flowers. Just see how well that goes over. Flowers negated. Might as well throw them in the trash. I think that kind of attitude is evidence that you have a diet of Christianity, but not a hunger for righteousness. Now listen, the reality for all of us is that our emotions towards Christ, our feelings towards God will wax and wane. They will grow and they will fade just like the tide. And there are times as we're doing this Bible reading plan that we've got laid out there, as we're doing the prayer guide that we're following along with it, there are times I get up in the morning and I go sit in my chair and I just absolutely do not have it. It's not there. But I'm there in my chair because it's a habit. It's a routine. And sometimes routines force the heart to conform. That's why we need good routines. Because sometimes they force the heart to conform. Because our hearts are desperately wicked. And sometimes we can train our bodies to do something that the heart isn't in. But listen, the goal of that time in my chair is not just to, let, to gratify the flesh, to check the box on my body's routine, to read my Bible, to check the box, to pray, to get up and go, okay, I've fulfilled my obligation for the day. The goal by the end of my time in my chair is that my heart is reminded who its king is. That's the goal. I don't want to get up from my chair until my soul is reminded of how hungry it is. Till I can actually rejoice that I'm a beggar that has found a never-ending source of bread. That's what I want more than anything. And I don't want to move from my place until that's happened. So if you're here this morning and you just don't have it, we've sang praises, we've prayed, we're reading in Scripture right now and talking about what it means, but you just, you don't have it. This is what we need to recognize is sinful laziness. It's true of every single one of us at any given moment. It's the sinful laziness of our heart that fails to recognize the majesty of its king. That's all it is. The king has walked in and our heart refuses to kneel. It's too lazy to stand up. That's all that is. This is what we need to take before the Lord and confess. Third question. What is the result of longing? What's the result of the longing? Jesus makes clear what the result is is for the citizens that hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, they shall be satisfied. And the word there means filled, like, like busting a gut, filled. Like pushing away from the table, filled. I think about this just for a moment. I don't think we need to have too much of an illustration. I think we kind of all know what we're talking about here, but we, we all love good Thanksgiving food, right? Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays, as you can imagine. It's the diet buster. 
It's the one we can set aside and just say, okay, this is, this is where I get to really fill. We stuff our face with the, you know, the traditional, the good foods. We unbutton the top button of our pants, which we can talk about later. If you're doing Thanksgiving not wearing jogging pants, you're, you're doing it wrong, but we'll talk about that another time. You unbutton the top button of your pants and you kind of push away from the table and all of us say the same thing. Whew, I'm full. But then what happens later on that evening? You go back into the fridge, pull out the turkey, pull out the cranberry sauce, pull out the bread, make yourself a little turkey sandwich with mayonnaise. Maybe even taking another thing of bread, dipping it in the gravy and making a little moist maker in your sandwich. Just that's free. You can just have that one. All right. Just a tip. You know, good a good little sandwich. See, the expectation when you say I'm full is that there's going to be a point in the future where you're hungry again. In fact, there's no way in our language that we can communicate perpetual fullness in just one word. It doesn't even make sense to us that someone would be perpetually full. Even the word here that's used, satisfaction, we assume would mean at some point this person is going to be less than satisfied and they're going to need to come back and be satisfied again. But the intention that Jesus has here is to point us to the future. He says, they shall be satisfied. The same is true of a couple uh, uh, Beatitudes down where he says, the pure in heart shall see God. He's pointing the hungry and the thirsty to an age to come where they won't have to worry over their own unrighteousness anymore. So what's the result of the longing? He says we will be maximally satisfied. Ultimately and maximally satisfied. At all times, in all places, we will be maximally satisfied. That means that we won't be tempted, nor will we pursue sin any longer. Our eyes will be always fixed, and our only desire is to fulfill the faithful covenant of Jesus Christ. To be faithful to the covenant of Christ. Never wavering from that. Here's the point that Jesus is driving home. The diet of the kingdom of heaven is meant to satisfy. That's what it's meant for. It's meant to satisfy. That's totally different than all of the diets that we ever go on. The diet of the kingdom of heaven is meant to satisfy, not deprive. When we think of diets, we think, I'm going to deprive myself. What am I going to deprive myself of this time? What am I going to do without? Tell me how bad my life is going to be over the next few years. Jesus says the diet of the kingdom of heaven is not meant to deprive you. It's meant to ultimately satisfy you. To satisfy you beyond all long. But that has to drive us to the question, is righteousness what I really hunger for? Do I really hunger for righteousness? Jesus is saying here, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that they hunger for righteousness. So tell me, what do you have an appetite for? What do you have an appetite for? You're here. Some of you may even be members of our church. 
So you're clearly wanting to communicate to everyone else that you've bound yourself to living in accordance with what God wants for you. That's what you're communicating to the rest of us. But do you really have an appetite for lust? Are you planning your next fix to escape to an online companion? Do you have an appetite for anger or bitterness? Are you waiting for someone to cross you? Do you frequently find yourself complaining over things? Do you give, you, are you waiting to give people a piece of your mind? Waiting to blow up on another individual? Do you have an appetite for gossip? Would you rather talk about someone behind their back? When you have an issue, no matter how big or how small, do you find yourself going to that person to resolve it or going to someone else to discuss it? I think we can all think of many things that we have appetites for. That we find fulfillment in. Even if nobody knows it, those things are completely unholy, but yet we find ourselves having an appetite for them. The truth is, without Christ giving to us a new nature, we would never have a desire for that which is holy and pleasing to the Lord. The author of Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't do it. It's impossible to manufacture that kind of righteousness on your own. You cannot do it. But if you have believed in God that through Jesus Christ, He has made provision through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, He has made atonement for your sins. That it's only through Christ that you have that atonement. If you've sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ as your King then He's given to you a new nature that has a new appetite. And the Spirit that He's put within you, the appetite that it has, can only be satisfied by righteousness. By living in righteousness. But while you're in this life, you also carry about a body of flesh whose appetite is for sin. So you've got two warring things, natures, that are fighting against each other constantly. Now, on the other hand, it's entirely possible that you have no appetite for righteousness. And if this sounds like boring stuff to you, if you come here and you go, man, I just, I can't imagine living that way. Whew. That just sounds like a, really unfulfilled life, then I'm sorry, but eternal life is going to be really upsetting to you. Because you don't see righteousness as a reward. You don't see it as a good thing. So why would you want an eternity of it? If you don't see it as a good thing, it's going to be very dissatisfying to you. So you may be thinking, well, I think I'm saved. But I definitely feel the warring of two natures inside of me. But it seems like the nature of the flesh has the other nature whooped. That I'm just constantly giving in. What do I do? 
I'm going to ask you four questions that I want you to just put in your brain and just think about. These aren't the only four questions that you could ask yourself, but they are four good ones. What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? And how do you spend your free time? What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? And how do you spend your free time? Stop thinking of the Christian life as only things that you're not permitted to do. i got to push away from the table there. I can't, I can't have those things. And instead, start filling your life with things that remind you of who Christ is. If it's true that you have that nature in you, then it has an appetite for righteousness. You simply need to feed it. Where do you spend your free time? Who are the people around you that can edify you? And point you back to that. Do you plan your free time out? Because if you struggle with lust and you don't plan your free time, you're going to continue to be ensnared by that trap every single time. Your free time needs to be filled to the fullest with things that point you back to Christ. If your appetite is for gossip, then you need to have friends in your life that will entertain you with holiness, not with news about other people. You might need a friend change. Start watching and listening to things that are going to edify you, that are going to remind you of who Christ is and what He has done for you, because the Spirit of God that He has put within you has an appetite for righteousness. You have to feed it. The flesh also has an appetite for sin, and you have to starve it. As one of my favorite teachers used to say, temptation is like a stray dog. If you feed it, it'll hang around. And I'll add, it will grow bigger and stronger. The same is true of your appetite for righteousness. You feed it, and it will grow. Starve the other, and you'll notice who begins winning the battles. When you begin to fill your life with the things of God and you begin to pursue righteousness, don't be surprised that when the only thing that satisfies you is living in accordance with His will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are woefully inadequate. Our hearts desire many things. Every person in this room may have a desire for a multitude of other things. Things that I didn't even mention. Bring those to our minds. Make us aware. Lord, in your mercy, reveal to us our struggles. So that we can confess them. So that we can own up to them. Lord, we want to pursue righteousness. We want to live the way you have laid out for us in your scriptures. But we need help. We're chained to this body of flesh. And it desires sin. But we're thankful for the spirit you have given to us. Through which we can pursue righteousness. 
pray you would show us how to feed it to make it grow. Lord, allow us to see the satisfaction that comes with pursuing what you have for us. That eternal life would look appealing to us, ultimately. In Jesus' name, amen.